This episode is powered by Safety FM. The Crucial Talks Podcast with your host, Mike Saddam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crucial Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Saddam. Now, a lot of you know I've been involved with safety for quite a long time. I've been in aviation safety for decades, been speaking to power plants, gas and petroleum industry, and refineries in the last couple of years. And because of all that, I've also had the chance to read a bunch of books about complex industries just like the ones I speak to. Now, some of those books were written by a man named Charles Perot. Of note are Normal Accidents and The Next Catastrophe. Now, they're both great books, but they take a bit of digesting as you read them. It takes some time. It takes some energy. It takes a lot of thought behind them. I mean, I'm decades in, and I still have to reread things to try to understand what's actually being said in the book. And that's why I'm really excited about today's guest, because Chris Clearfield has co-authored a book based on similar concepts. The big difference that I've noticed is it's very readable, easy to understand, and it actually applies to today's world, not just those complex industries. It goes beyond systems like aviation and chemical refineries and into other systems like social media. It's not just about how and why things fail, but it's also about solutions in business and our lives. Now, the book is called Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and what we can do about it. It really is a great book, fun to read, keeps engaged, but still maintains its academic integrity. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Chris Clearfield to the Crucial Talks podcast. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great, Mike, and thanks for that lovely intro. That's, that's, we, that's exactly what we tried to do, keep people engaged while, while maintaining our academic integrity. That's a perfect way to put it. Well, you guys hit the mark on that. It, it really is a great book covering, I mean, really deep, level thinking about complex systems, but it's really in a simple way that people can understand. And with the stories you put in there, with the case studies, that sort of thing, it really does keep keep people engaged. So can you give us just a quick rundown on you and what you really think the value of this book is? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the, the rundown on me also ties into how I came to, to these ideas and, and to this book. Um, you know, I was a science and engineering geek um, as I kind of as an undergrad and, and growing up. I studied physics and biochemistry um, at Harvard for my undergrad degree. Thought I was going to go to grad school, but ended up getting kind of intercepted by Wall Street instead. And um, I worked on Wall Street first as a trader, and then as a person looking at the kind of risk of automated trading systems, risks of using computers to you know send orders and, and make money. Um, and for me, you know, what's what stood out was um, I worked in that industry kind of during the heart of the financial crisis. So what I found myself kind of wondering aloud or sort of observing was just just this n- notion that even from the outside of some of these big banks, I could tell that some firms were going to do better than others. Um, you know, I could tell that the culture of some firms meant that they were going to come through this crisis better than others. And and I sort of had that observation, and then I got really skeptical of it. And I said, well, you know, A, can I really tell this? Um, and B, if so, boy, that's pretty interesting, right, that we could tell something about how well a firm is going to perform in a crisis just based on kind of an outside observation of their culture. And at the same time, I was actually learning to fly, and I was reading a lot about accidents and, and what happens when flight crews 
um, you know, crash, which which obviously they they never want to do, but it tragically happens sometimes. Um, and and just sort of realizing that actually some of the same cultural dynamics were at play in some of those instances. Um, and so that just that kind of really got me thinking. That got me thinking about the connection between kind of culture and and how how different industries take risk. And then it was really in 2010 when Deepwater Horizon happened, and I, and I started reading about that accident. Um, you know, the sinking of that rig in the Gulf, and and obviously the huge environmental consequences, and just realizing that at the center of that was both a complex system, um, like in finance, in some ways like in aviation, and also I think a culture that that had a lot of challenges in how it made decisions and and turns its attention to different kinds of risks. So um, it was really those three things that led me to um, team up with Andras Tilchik, who's my my friend and co-author on this book, um, and and really start a kind of research and consulting business called System Logic, where basically we we help firms um, with these ideas. We we sort of teach leaders to create organizations that can make better decisions and, and thrive amidst the kind of complex world that we live in. And the book is is sort of a byproduct of our work and, and what came out of that. So um, yeah, it's been a, a kind of a fascinating, um, fascinating uh, ride. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting what you've just said there, because I, I love that transition you made because you were in, I mean, you were on Wall Street where it's about risk. I mean, you have to take risk. Right. I've really I've told people before that any time we're taking action toward a goal or a mission, risk automatically comes with that. It's how we yeah. deal with that risk. But what's interesting, what I love about your background is the fact that you're like, you're coming from a place that you're not trying to be, in fact, it's almost a detriment if you're too risk averse, because you're not going to take yes. those steps to make money. But they but the key is you and correct me if I'm wrong here, but all of this is still coming at the end of the of the bubble bursting and uh, Lehman Brothers and all of that stuff happening, uh, Deepwater Horizon, which is really an interesting case study on its own. I actually had a chance to meet Mike Williams at one of the conferences I was speaking at, talk to him, and, he, and talking directly with Mike Williams really pinpoints the fact that you're right. It was a complex system, but also had a culture with challenges. Yeah. So all of that being said, the, the difference in how we perceive and look at risk, you know, depending upon if you actually want people to take risk, like entrepreneurs and, and financial folks and stuff like that, to the other side of the coin where you want to maybe try to pull or rein people in from risk, really, it really shows me, and, and your focus on culture does the same thing, it shows me that it's not really about so much the policies or the processes or the totally. software but it's really a lot about the people. I totally agree. And, and I think that, the, you know, the way I think about it is, I mean, one of the ways I describe what we do is we help leaders figure out ways to manage the risks that actually can't be controlled by a policy or a rule or a procedure, right? These are, these are the risks that come from two things. They come from complexity. And as you said, they come from people trying to execute what is ultimately their core strategy, um, whether that's, you know, a, a, um, a public service organization providing services to the public, or it's a business, you know, expanding in a new market. Um, and so I, I think we think about risk as, as you said, it, the, the sort of natural consequence of whatever the strategy is. Now, there are other kinds of risk, right? There are risks that you can solve with a rule and a procedure. And there are firms that are really good at developing systems to help you do that. But 
I, I think for me personally, I'm much more interested in, and you know, our sweet spot is sort of um, these risks that that arise from the business itself, these risks that arise from um, the strategy itself, and and that are ultimately, um, I think, the ones that are are harder to solve, and for which solving them gives you um, su- such a much better kind of such much better traction in a sense. Well, and I love what you said there. All of that kind of makes sense because one of the things we talk about, I'm sure you've heard of this, is the black line versus blue line or drifting accumulation models, that sort of thing, where basically that black line is kind of like, hey, this is how we wrote policies and procedures and processes. So this is how we imagined everything is going to go. But in reality, it's really this blue line concept where it's variable, where it's the people in the system that are trying to get the right thing done. That, and that's really what Charles Perot was saying, right? When it's, it's totally. more of the, the normal accident happens because people are doing the right things or trying to do the right things. And it's how they perceive what they're supposed to be doing and how they're doing it that could actually lead to this, this type of accident. But what you, what you said in your book, I think, is pertinent to a lot of people is that one of the things Perot noticed was the focus on blame. And can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think it's a good jumping off point about yeah. how a lot of organizations, something goes wrong and the, their default is, well, let's blame somebody. Yeah, no, it, it's great. And I'll, I'll kind of approach it the way Perot did, which was, so so Perot's interest in, Perot is a sociologist who, before he started thinking about accidents, he wrote about the organization of textile mills in New England. So, you know, the, he was not an engineer. He was not somebody who... Um, sort of came to this stuff, um, except kind of by, by pretty random chance. But he, he was brought into the Three, Mile ac- the Three Mile Island accident investigation to kind of lend his perspective as a sociologist to that. And, and you know, what was really interesting is he sort of looked at this accident and, and the official conclusion of the, of the investigation commission was that this was operator error, you know, and, and it was kind of the, the kind of classic, the classic things, right? Operator error, they needed more training, they didn't do the right thing. And what Perot looked at this, this accident and said, he said, you know, um, the details of this accident, the logic of the system failure was not understood until seven months of, you know, investigation by the official commission. There's no way that the operators, you know, operating in that moment could have understood what they were quote unquote supposed to do because nobody understood that, you know, this was an accident that sort of departed from the, the planned, the planned um, kind of, you know, the, the sort of neat and tidy engineering plan of how that nuclear power plant, how that system worked. And so in response to the meltdown, what Perot said is basically this is an accident that arose from two things, complexity and tight coupling. And so what is, what does he mean by both of these? Well, for complexity, He's, what he's talking about is the, the kind of unanticipated consequences, the unanticipated interactions of different parts of the system. So it's a system that has so many different parts that you can't understand kind of, you know, you can't sort of draw it on a whiteboard. You can't understand all the different interactions that might happen in reality in comparison with, you know, what your designers sort of plan. So in the Three Mile Island case, it, um, it, it the, the accident itself was triggered by you know, really trivial things like a minor water leak, um, uh, some pumps that shut down, some valves that were closed unexpectedly, and then sort of famously, this valve that got stuck open in the reactor to, to help vent pressure, 
but the indicator in the control room said that it was closed. So you have kind of all of these different confusing elements happening at once. Um, and then tight coupling, the other variable that, that Perot thinks about is just sort of how much of a buffer there is in the system to recover from a problem. So in the case of a nuclear power plant, you know, it's, it's hard, you can't sort of pause the system, right? You know, the, the reaction is running and unless you can get that heat away, you're going to have a meltdown, which is ultimately what happened. And so Perot looked at this and he said, well, nuclear power is this complex, tightly coupled system. It is the kind of system that is very hard to um, engineer in a way that is really um, accident proof. So, you know, most of us don't work in nuclear power, but I think that these, the way I like to think about complexity and tight coupling is, is just travel, right? So, you know, if you're taking a trip from, from LA to New York, um, you know that a direct flight has kind of less chance of things going wrong, where if you have, you know, a connection in Utah and then a connection in Chicago, and then you're on to New York, there are all of these different things that, that kind of can happen, right? So you added interactions and that makes the, the likelihood of um, interruptions or delays more likely. And then the, the tight coupling bit, um, I think we've all had that experience of, you know, running, <laughs> running to change planes in uh, a big airport where you don't, you know, maybe you have 45 minutes before your flight and then there's a little bit of delay. Um, and so by the time you get there, you really, you know, you're off at a full sprint. And, and that is really tight coupling. It's like how much buffer does the system have to absorb these kind of unexpected interactions? No, I think that's a really, I love the way you put that. I mean, because somebody like me, I'm in California. I have to travel to Southern California periodically. I use a particular airline that is really, it's complex and tightly coupled. And I tell people, I said, hey, if you're going to fly back in the afternoon on that airline, you're probably yeah. going to get delayed out of that airport. And why is that? It's not because really that airport or the airplane they want to use at the time but something has happened earlier in the day and now at 5.30 at night, it doesn't work out. Yeah, exactly. Yep, totally. So I think that's a, it's a great way to kind of talk about complexity and tight coupling because, you know, I, I say those terms all the time and it makes sense to me, but I know there's folks out there that say, okay, airlines are tightly coupled and complex. I get it. Chemical refineries, nuclear power plants. I get all that. And even in your book, you talk about kind of like, old style dams versus like new dams and that right. sort of thing. But what about some people that are kind of thinking, okay, well, how does this really apply to me? Because do we see this in something like social media or marketing or anything like that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And actually it was one of the things that, that really surprised us most as we worked on this book. So, you know, I think Josh and I both kind of came into this project thinking that we would be writing about the deep water horizons of the world. And, 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 and we do, we do write about those things. But what really surprised us most is how pervasive um, this challenge is in our world today. So, you know, social media is just a great example, right? Where um, something like Twitter, the whole nature of the system is that it is complex, right? It is, you, um, you put a message out there you, you might think it's going to land one way, but if it lands a different way, um, and if people don't like that, boy, are you, you know, it, it, can that be a challenge, right? That, you know, their response to their responses and their response to their responses, there's all these feedback loops, which means that, you know, I mean, people have um, posted what they have thought of as, as sort of um, innocuous jokes and, you know, lost their jobs because of it. I mean, so you have this kind of crazy level of, 
um, interactivity and complexity that that we just is is really new in in our world in many ways. Um, and then the tight coupling bit is is there too in the sense that you know once you put a message out there, you you can't take it back, and and the the system evolves very very quickly. And even if you do respond, or even if you want to post some kind of retraction or or apologize, that's not going to get picked up in the same way. So you really do have this system that that's very sensitive. And I think. You know, back to your question earlier about blame, I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really good question. And, and one of the things uh, that we really focus on in the book is we focus on solutions, right? The solutions are all about what leaders can do to create organizations that can, you know, make better decisions in, in the complex world, right? Since some of those solutions involve um, reducing complexity, increasing transparency, and, and those kind of things. But actually, a lot of them involve getting your team to speak up about problems and you know, sort of harnessing the data that you do have and the, and the wisdom that you do have already as an organization. But the key is that that is not going to work if you are using those kind of falling back on those sort of shame and, and blame tactics. And, you know, what we know about some of the most innovative companies is part of why they're innovative is because people feel comfortable taking risks. And, Boy, if you you know blame somebody or fire somebody for um, a, a kind of a, a mistake that anybody could make, are you totally uh, crippling your organization's ability to take risks and and make progress and learn from all of these events? So you're likely to turn these small failures into the seeds of bigger ones. Yeah, and that's really interesting because this is all about human behavior and the the chilling effect that this blaming somebody actually takes on the organization because that filters out also. I mean, I'm one of these believers that human behavior and the beliefs we assign to the roles we play, that's almost in itself a complex and tightly coupled system because those beliefs, they really propagate throughout the organization pretty rapidly. I mean, if you do something like that, somebody makes a mistake, then I love the way you said it. Somebody makes a mistake that anybody could have made and they're the ones that get the full brunt of that fallout that could have a cascading effect in the entire culture. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I, li- I like that analogy a lot. And, and in fact, you know, one of the things that we, we talk a little bit about in the book, but, but really we see a lot in our work is the way that organizational complexity, um, the structure of an organization can add complexity, can add tight coupling, and can really exacerbate the complexity of the system that people are, are dealing with. Um, you know, uh, General Motors is a great example of that. Their, I mean, their their ignition switch recall is really what you know was an engineering problem, was a technical problem at the uh, at the core of it in some sense, but really it was an organizational problem. Um, and so, you know, that that's the thing I think is fascinating that at, at scale, solving some of these organizational problems means that you are you know not only setting yourself up to innovate better, but you are also setting yourself up to you know avoid the the ten hundred billion dollar catastrophe um, that that might befall you, and I think that that, that that it's easy to lose sight of that. Well, let's talk about that catastrophe uh, befalling somebody because I I think what's really interesting about your book is something that we talk about a lot in in safety and human behavior and human performance, where we really talk about a lot of organizations focus on things that are costing them money slips and falls, small accidents, little mistakes, stuff like that. But they 
some organizations have this belief that, hey, look, if I take care of the slips and falls, if I take care of the trips, if I take care of all these little things that are costing me money or the people are doing that are causing minor injuries, if I do those things, all of a sudden, that means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prevent this catastrophic event. But that's not really the case, is it? Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I mean, you know, on the one hand, we work with when we're working with a, a leader, one of the things we're always looking for is data, right? What's the data on what's going on in your organizations right now? And to that end, you know, data on slips and falls, data on accidents can be super valuable. But I think the mistake that people make is not realizing that um, just because you're collecting that data or just because you're sort of optimizing for that does not mean that you are actually helping system safety, right? And, and I think that that's such an important, that's such an important jump and such an important concept because the, the more complex our systems become, the more that we can have failure at such big scale that really dwarfs the, the kind of benefit of, um, you know, the sort of obsessive focus on holding handrails or having, you know, having lids on your coffee cups. And, and there's a we quote from Transocean, who who obviously owned and operated the the Deepwater Horizon rig. Um, we quote from I think an annual report that they put out the year after the accident, and it says something like, um, "Notwithstanding the tragic loss of life in the Gulf of Mexico, we achieved an exemplary statistical safety record as measured by our total recordable incident rate and total potential severity rate. Um, they had the best year in safety performance in our company's history." And, you know, that's just, I mean, not only is that an incredibly tone-deaf statement, um, it's really interesting, right? I mean, they just had a, a you know, they just had a huge part in the the the, the biggest environmental catastrophe that, that we had seen in, in decades, if not ever, um, where people died. And it's, um, they're, they're sort of looking at their statistical safety models. And I, I think what that shows is that, um we, we need to make sure we're not losing the forest for the trees as we look at these kind of things. Well, and that's another interesting thing you bring up because the people on Deepwater Horizon, the people that work uh, in complex industries, the people that work in finance, all of these people are really driven by kind of the same internal drivers we have been for eons, the, the need to be part of a team, the need to be part of a bigger purpose, the need to be recognized for what we do, the yep. need to feel this level of social esteem. So people are driven really, and I put this in quotes, to do the right thing, but that doing the right thing behaviorally could be different than doing the right thing uh, as process or procedure or some of this other type of data might might indicate. And I think that's where there's kind of this interesting part of your book that really drew my attention. You mentioned shadowy areas, that people are operating in these shadowy areas. And it, it brings up this connotation of, hey, people are working in these areas, trying to get the job done, trying to do things, back to this whole black line, blue line, work is imagined versus work in reality, that kind of thing. What is this idea or this concept of, of shadowy area? Well, I, I think, um, you know, I think, I think part of what it is is just this idea, and, and you talked about it in terms of the, the, the normalization of deviance, um, which is how I think about that black line, blue line stuff. But, I, you know, I basically think of it, if, if I kind of know what you're referring to, it's just this idea that, I mean, 99.9% .9 of the time people show up 
to work every day to do the right thing, right? To do, to do a good job. Maybe it's 99% of the time, but it's by far most of the time. And I think that that idea of kind of assuming positive intent is a, um, is a huge part of what makes cultures that are able to learn from these things and that are able to handle complexity. It's a big part of what makes that possible for those cultures. And so, you know, I, I think there's two ways that we think of that in, in the book. I mean, one way is just recognizing that we humans are, as you said, we're motivated by these things, um, you know, mastery, autonomy. Um, Dan Pink's book, Drive, is, is really great. If, you, if your listeners haven't read it, they should definitely check it out. I mean, after meltdown, of course, but um, it's it's really it's really good to sort of see how teams can be motivated by, um, you know, I think the the way I think about it is the kind of the structure around them or or the kind of culture around them and what that culture allows them to do, how it allows them to innovate. So, I think that part of what I think is fascinating is um, just this, you know, that that even showing up and and showing up every day to do the right thing. Um, we can make mistakes, right? So one of the ways I think about that is trying to build our systems to be, resi- you know, not not depend on the um, kind of perfect response from imperfect humans. And, you know, we see this, especially when we're building technology systems that, that people interact with. So um, I, I think the you know, the most recent example of this is really the, the Boeing um, 737 MAX crashes, where Boeing engineers added a safety system. And, you know, in first principle, that seems like a great idea, right? I mean, you add a safety system, you get, you know, you think you get more safety, but I think what they didn't take fully into account is the complexity that caused. And I think part of why they didn't take that into account is because they looked around and they said, well, you know, the people flying this are these incredibly well-trained flight crews. This is very similar to all of these other things they already know how to deal with. This happens, they'll just be able to deal with it. There's a problem with the system, they'll just be able to deal with it. But what I think that they didn't take into account is the way that um, being startled affects people and, and the way that, you know, humans, it, it, just like at Deepwater Horizon, don't always understand the, the, the kind of immediate right action in, in that way. Well, and I think that's an interesting point that tried to relate that to this idea of shadowy areas, because that shadowy area really is the that deviation or that, I mean, even deviation sounds sounds very negative, but it's really not negative. When I think of shadowy areas, I think of the, the condition of the human being, the human being in our systems really is what lends our systems, our companies, our corporations, whatever it happens to be, even our teams, the people in that, in those shadowy areas, really to me, that's where we get our flexibility, we get our adaptability, and that's really where success comes from. But what I'm seeing and what, I, what I've what i kind of been realizing from reading books like yours is the fact that the path that we take or the decisions we make as human beings that get us to success could also get us to these catastrophic failures. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that that's a, that's a good way to put it. And I think that um, it, it's, it's really interesting, you know, um, of flexibility and being comfortable with ambiguity, I think is a huge part of what makes, um, what creates teams that are able to innovate and teams that are able to handle these kind of, of um, catastrophes. But I think both of those, or, or you know, avoid these kind of uh, sort of big, big system challenges. Um, but, but I think what I, one of the things I go back to is just that how much this requires, um, I would say almost 
yeah, right, this culture of blamelessness that we've been talking about, any, any culture of, of curiosity from a leadership perspective, right? So um, the, one of the examples in the book that's, that I still kind of find it pretty incredible is, the, is Target's expansion into Canada. So, you know, here you have this, this super sophisticated U.S. retailer, you know, hundreds of stores, um, billion, worth billions of dollars, and obviously very, very sharp and capable people. Uh, so they go to expand into Canada, um, and the way they do it is they buy a bunch of they buy a bunch of leases, right? So they basically are put in a situation where very quickly they have to open on the order of 100, 150 stores. <clears throat> so you can already kind of start to see some of these elements come into play, right? So they've got tight deadlines. So they're sort of, they've ratcheted up their system from a tight coupling perspective. And then it turns out that they have to roll out this whole new supply chain network, this whole new um, inventory management system to kind of manage the, the business. So here you have this, you know, big strategic expansion, very high stakes, very capable people, very capable teams, um, but you've got complexity in terms of all the potential interactions, and you've got tight coupling in terms of this timetable that they have. And, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is when, when we um, talked with people who were involved in this, and, and you can look at the kind of literature of what's, what's public online, um, or what, what's been reported, I should say, um, it's, it's really interesting because it's very clear that the, the leadership was given a rosier picture of what was going on than, than maybe they, they could have been. And, you know, it's, it, you, you look at that and you say, well, I mean, it seems like they wanted things to be perfect. And so that's the reports that they got. So th that is to say that this comfort with ambiguity, it really only comes when people are comfortable sharing the truth. And, you know, I, I was at a, a company the other day and, and one of their, um, one of the values they had on the wall was something like, you know, we expect our partners, they, by partners, they mean um, employees. We expect our partners to, to be willing to, to have the courage to speak up when they see something wrong. And, and I sort of looked at it and I thought, um, and I, I, and I said this with the, the person I was meeting, I said, you know, that's actually kind of wrong. Like you don't need the, you don't want to put the courage on the, co the sort of partner, the employee you need to put the courage, it's the courage that the managers need to listen, right? Because so often, and, and we write about in the book, power and power cues and, and things like that, but so often when we hear something that dissents from, from our view of the world, we view that as a threat. And that's a very natural human thing. And I, I think what really effective organizations are able to do is they're able to overcome that and, and shift that to, uh, their leaders are able to shift that and, and operate from this kind of curiosity mindset. Yeah, I think that curiosity mindset and really that story just told, it really is going back to what do we need as people? How are we programmed? How have we been programmed forever? And it seems to me that it, it really comes down to if we have an open, honest, trusting relationship within our organization, that, that organization, really we look at that as an in-group, as a social in-group, a group that we are part of that doesn't mean everything has to be rosy. It doesn't mean everything, you know, we're Pollyannas and everything is great. What it really seems like it means is that if we have that level of trust, you protect me, I protect you, we protect this bigger purpose we serve, whether that's a company or your teammate or whatever it happens to be. If you have those things as part of your character, part of your value system, part of your belief system, 
when you're fulfilling those roles in that organization, it seems like that curiosity is really beneficial because it, if you do have bad news to give, you don't, it, people within it, because of the strong in-group relationships, don't view you as an out-group. They view you as part of their team, part of their tribe, so they can take that information in. And so instead really of focusing internally on protecting yourselves from each other and that sort of thing, it seems like what you're saying is you can actually turn this knowledge into a beneficial thing because people can now focus their their energy outside and turn maybe some of those negatives into opportunities because they really trust each other. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. That, that, that's exactly right. And, and um, you know, that, that element of trust, I mean, I, I, when, I, when we talk about it, it with, both in the book and, and also with, with consulting clients, when, when we're working with leaders and organizations, we're, we're talking about it in terms of what, what the literature, what the academic literature calls psychological safety, which is just, I mean, in a sense, it's just this willingness of people to take risks because they feel like mistakes are not held against them and, and, and they're not blamed for, for that. And, you know, I think that you have so many companies out there, so many organizations who, who want to do innovative things, but then really are constrained by the culture and how they follow up with things, um, how they coach um, or, or find a better place or exit, you know, poor performers, um, how they kind of demand a high level of performance from people. But that also comes down to the, the comfort that people have for, for taking risks. And the good news is that, you know, that's something that, that can be changed um, and can be improved and increased. Well, and so how do we actually do that? I mean, I love everything you're saying because it, it really goes back to what I love about the, this concept in your book about the shadowy areas because that's where that's where these conversations are happening. That's where these interactions are happening between people. That's where the true culture exists is not in the, you know, the bright line of the policies and procedures and work is imagined, but it's it's more in this more messier, more vague, shadowy area where people are operating to get the job done. So we know we can change that, right? Any human behavior can be changed if we apply apply things in the right way. So I know this is more beneficial. Your book is more beneficial than just to chemical plant or to aviation or to some of these, you know, uh, complex, dangerous industries, oil platforms, that sort of thing. It is really beneficial in other areas, in other businesses and in life. So how do you, or how are you, actually helping helping these things take take root in some of these organizations what are you doing out there that's helping these these companies realize it and maybe shift their culture a little bit to this this different mindset yeah it's a, it's a great question so i i mean when we come into a, an organization um we'll, we'll usually come in at a fairly high level um because that's really where the, this, these ideas have to start so that they can be made effective throughout the organization. So we'll come in at, you know, with senior managers, we'll come in with, with sort of VPs um, at the C-suite, that, that sort of level. Um, and really, to be quite honest, we start by teaching, right? And we teach in a way that is engaging and, and um, dr uh, draws on, you know, case studies, both from the book and from other places, but then also sort of immediately connects back to the work that people are doing, whether they're in an oil company or a technology firm or in finance, 
um, or uh, I'm, I'm headed to a hospital next week to, to do some um, just teaching around these ideas. Um, and, and really with that as the foundation, we have a couple of things we can do from there. So one of the things we like to do is, you know, as I said before, we think data is really important. And there are actually good ways to collect data on the different kinds of things that might be impeding an organization's ability to perform at the highest levels, whether that's in their systems, in their teams, or in the environment that they're operating in and, and how they're able to learn from that. And so once we've kind of gotten that data, which we collect quantitatively, qualitatively in a bunch of different ways, we then have the ability to sort of say, okay, you know, your systems are very complex, but here's a way that we could help think about in injecting some transparency into it. So that might be paying attention to near misses and, and doing a better job of kind of drawing out information from that. Um, it may be, um, you know, learning from things that actually have, have failed and kind of feeding that back into the organization and practices, or it may be certain team dynamics around psychological safety and, and engagement. And, and then understanding that, you know, there, there are real things that we can do to kind of, um, as you said, shift, shift behaviors. So I like to think about psychological safety as one of these. So dissent is so important in an organization. And, and so one of the things we can do is work with um, managers on how, you know, helping them shift to that curiosity mindset away from that, that mindset that is about being right or about having their vision. Um, we actually have some cool tools that uh, let people crowdsource the way that they are um, voting on priorities or different kinds of decisions. So we use this sort of distributed voting mechanism and we'll often use it, you know, as we facilitate a meeting to kind of draw the input in, in a, a way that is not focused on just who the, the most vocal people in the room are, but really gets the whole wisdom of the crowd involved. So, you know, through coaching and through, um, through some specific behavioral changes and also through some kind of neat uses of technology, we can open up an organization um, and, and kind of get better, get better outcomes from these things. Um, there's two other things that I think are worth mentioning in this way. Um, one is just diversity, right? So a lot of organizations think about diversity, but, but one of the most surprising things in, in our book was having a diverse group changes the way we make decisions. And, and, it, and it does it actually by in, increasing the friction in the decision. So people are more likely to question each other. People are more likely, are less likely to kind of accept the status quo, less likely to, to accept, you know, business as usual um, when there is diversity on the team. And, and interestingly, I mean both sort of surface level diversity, you know, race, gender, ethnicity, but I also, we also mean here diversity and professional backgrounds. So one of the most interesting bits of research that, that Andras and a, and a co-author did that we, we included in the book was this research around how um, the, the makeup of a bank's board affects the, the bank's likelihood of failure. So the more, when, when you looked at data from, I think, 15 years of, of community banks in the U.S., it turns out that the more bankers a bank had on their board, the more likely they were to fail. And that's really interesting, right? You would think that bankers uh, would be more likely to be good at managing a bank, but it turns out that having a diverse board where you have, you know, not just bankers, but doctors and lawyers and engineers, um, civil servants, that kind of removes this sort of benefit of the doubt that, that we so often see. 
Um, so people are more likely to question and, and nobody feels stupid saying, I don't understand this because it's very explicit that that's not their area. So that's a practice that organizations can build into the way they make decisions, build into the way they bring together interdisciplinary teams to really stop making these simplifying assumptions. Um, and, the, and then finally, the other practice that I think is, is related to that is just this idea of outsiders. So we can um, very often, you know, in an organization that's kind of closed off, they will like to remain insular so that their, their decisions aren't challenged. But, but one of the things we know is that, that outsiders really inject a, a really powerful way of kind of, again, sort of questioning underlying assumptions and getting people to better outcomes and, and better decisions. And actually one of my favorite things I, I got to do for the, for the research for the book was I went down to Jet Propulsion Labs in, in Pasadena and I spent a day with the JPL engineers um, just kind of talking with them about the way that they structured their decision-making on these, you know, very, very high stakes, risky projects of, you know, shooting spacecraft to Mars and things like that. And um, what was incredible about it was that they really have this, this kind of way of not in a bureaucratic way, but they have this way of separating the way that they think about risk taking from the way that they think about the production pressures of, um, you know, doing great science and, and things like that. And, and by kind of incorporating these outsiders within, they end up with, with these, this ability to raise and, and solve these big, thorny um, engineering risk problems, which was really, really cool to see. No, I think that's a great place to kind of leave off because these, both of these things, these behavioral changes, how you use them in organizations, how you're helping people understand them, it really comes down to, again, a perception shift, a change of lens for people because it sounds like what you're saying with diversity, what you're saying about incorporating outsiders, it's really about not looking at people, again, back to the blame. We're not looking as, at people as, hey, you're the problem. You're what we have to solve. You're the ones cause, causing all the issues. We're putting on a different lens now and shifting that to, hey, you're the ones that can help us solve these big, thorny problems. You're the ones that can bring in a different view. You are not part of the problem. You're part of the solution. It seems like that shift in mindset, that change in lens can be super beneficial for a bunch of different people. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, um, I, I just think more broadly, the, the bank example is actually the, the board of directors um, example that I just talked about is, is actually a really good example of this in that um, those banks with more bankers on their board tended to fail more, but only when they were operating in complex and competitive environments. So when there was a lot of competition and when they, when they had to do, um, as a result, they had to tend to, to um, deal with sort of riskier products. And <clears throat> what I think is really interesting about that, and you know, in, in the book, we sort of reflect on this at the end, that we really are entering this golden age of, of meltdowns as we think about it, where our, you know, our complexity has increased, our technology has increased, it's sort of penetrated every facet of our life. Um, and more and more, we are operating in these systems that are, are complex and tightly coupled, whether that is a big technology system like you know, oil refining um, and, and aviation, or just something like even expanding a retail business in, a, in another area. Um, so what I think is fascinating is that we have all of these tools now, but they are, they have not all been, been brought online. And, and, you know, these are simple tools like listening to voices of concern, but that doesn't mean they're easy. And, and I think that 
we are we now have the capability to um, use this kind of collection of, of sort of data-driven ways of operating that involve really being sensitive to the way as our organizations work and, and looking at data and really, as we've talked about, bringing that curiosity mindset to things. And that can dramatically change um, how we are able to innovate, how we're able to make better decisions, how we're able to thrive amidst the complexity of the modern world. Um, and really how senior leaders can, can get their arms around the real things that are affecting their business. Um, because, you know, business as usual just doesn't work anymore as we see it. Well, and I think that's a, that's a great kind of concept to leave us off on just because it really recognizes that we do have more complexity, that our, our complex systems are rapidly changing and becoming more complex, more tightly coupled. But the part that you're helping people deal with is that human part of working within those complex, tightly coupled systems. So if people want more information about you, if they want to contact you, if they need more information about the book or need some help with some of this stuff, how do they get in, in touch with you? How do they get more information? Yeah, the, the best place to start is just chrisclearfield.com. So um, if you go there, that has links to the book. It has links to um, speaking um, and and also links to the, the consulting work that we do. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a great place to start. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Chris, thanks a lot for coming on. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. I know you're a busy guy. I really appreciate you coming on because what you're talking about is just so important to everything we're dealing with today and what we're going to be dealing with in the future. So really, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It was my pleasure. I'm, I'm really, uh, really excited we got a chance to chat. Well, and everybody out there listening, thanks to you also for listening. Please share the podcast, review it, share it with your friends. So we, they can get some benefits just like this conversation we have with Chris. And if you need anything from me, if you need to connect with me, please visit me at crucialtalks.com or via email, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whatever works for you. I'm here for you. Everybody out there, have a great week. And remember, if we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people. Please review, share, and subscribe to the Crucial Talks podcast. Visit CrucialTalks.com.